Hey guys, just before we get started, I wanted to kind of put a swear warning because I realize I do in fact swear a lot and I just kind of want to make sure if any kitties are listening that uh, you should probably stop now if unless you're a mature child. And also I'd like to say, uh, sorry mom, <laughs> let's get started with the episode. Oh, that was that was a crisp opening, crisp opening. I guys, it doesn't it doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to the Long Mystery Rain podcast. I'm Aiden. I'm your host for this podcast. So I hope you guys are all doing well. I've actually had a pretty good two weeks. Guess who finally got hired for a job? God, it's only been half the summer. Gosh, I'm gonna make so little money. When I go back to school, it's very sad, but at least I have a job now. I'm gonna be historical interpreter again, which I love at a different museum but like similar content at this museum. So I'm really excited to uh, start that job. I hope they send me my orientation package soon because I'm like really eager to start working. I actually visited the site yesterday incognito to like do a little recon on what the site looks like before I get there. Cause like I wanted to be like, you know, prepared and I'm gonna make myself like a like a cheat sheet so that like I look super prepared and I'm like so cool. Yeah, I know. Mm. Uh, what else have I done this week? Oh, I've purchased a couple of research books. I, you know, I normally don't buy hard copy books to do research for this podcast. One, because it's expensive and I don't have a lot of money to invest in that. But, um, my grandma gave me like a hundred dollars, uh, because my brother graduated (laughs) and she thought it was only fair that I also get a hundred dollars if he's getting a hundred dollars. So I was like, all right, time to buy some books. So I've bought, um, um, a novel about uh, Cecily Bonneville Gray, which is pr- not an episode that's coming super soon, but like it's, I'm starting the research for it. And I also bought a book called Dark Queens, which is about a certain dark age queens that I'm very excited to do separate episodes on and maybe might include a visit from another podcast if I can facilitate that. And I also just bought a book about the queens of Jerusalem because like I'm so interested in Jerusalem as a crusader state and also the fact that it produced an immense amount of women as rulers from there. So I'm really excited about all three books that I bought. I can't wait to, you know, dive into all these different time periods. And I hope you guys are excited for any of those upcoming episodes, because I know I am. All right, enough about me. Let's uh, get into today's topic. Today, we're talking about Anna of Kiev. You may have heard of her, you may have not. Um, I found out about her from a Useful Charts episode where he went through the kings of France and I noticed one particular French king was the only French king to marry a Russian or Ukrainian princess, and that was Anna of Kiev. Now, I'm going to probably be referring to Anna as both Russian or Ukrainian. It's kind of interchangeable because at the time Anna was born, neither Russia or Ukraine existed as an entity. Uh, The place she lived was the Kievan Rus, which is where both Russia and Ukraine originated from. So really her ancestry is a mix of both, and you could either claim both bits of ancestry for her, so I'll be referring to her as either. And also, um, when I refer to the entity that is the Kievan Rus, I'm going to say Kiev instead of Kiev. You pronounce the city 
Kiev, but when you're pronouncing the entity Kiev and Rus, you say Kiev instead of Kiev. Okay, just just clearing that up. I don't want anyone yelling at me about pronunciation, but I'm really excited to get in this. Anna is such an interesting person, and I also found out I'm descended from her, so like that's like cool of me, right? All right, let's get into it, guys. Okay, so Anna of Kiev was born most likely in the year 1030 in the city of Kiev as the youngest daughter of Grand Prince Yaroslav the Wise of Kiev and his wife Indigrud Olaf's daughter of Sweden. <laughs> I, I knew I wasn't going to pronounce that correctly. Also known as Saint Anna of Sweden. So we don't really know anything about her birth date. In fact, the year 1030 of being her birth is like just a guess. It's like, eh, might have been 1030, but it also could have been 1027 or even 1032. But we're pretty sure that she was the youngest of the girls in her family, but probably not the youngest out of all of her siblings. Like she might have been like a middle younger kid. She had a lot of siblings. And I grew up with like 10 siblings, four sisters, six brothers, which is a huge family even for the 11th century. I mean, considering the uh, the infant mortality right back then, it's quite impressive that she grew up with that many siblings that lived pretty close to adulthood. <laughs> now, speaking of family, let's get to know Anna's parents, Yaroslav and Indigert. Okay, so let's start ladies first. Let's start with Anna's mom, Indigard, because she's actually pretty interesting, despite the fact that we don't know a ton about her. Um, Indigard was the daughter of King Olaf of Sweden, who is considered the first historically recorded king of Sweden that we have evidence for. Also, he was the first Christian king of Sweden, which is a pretty big deal, because uh, Sweden, out of all of like the Scandinavian slash Nordic countries, it was the last one to convert to Christianity. So Olaf's reign is considered like the transition between like the Viking period and the medieval period in Sweden. So safe to say. Uh, Anna's grandpa was a pretty important dude. Now, when Indigard was younger, a marriage was proposed between her and the king of Norway, who was also named Olaf. His name was Olaf II. Uh, but that fell through when her sister Astrid was chosen to marry King Olaf instead. Um, luckily, her father was like, it's okay, it's okay, babe. I'll get you another marriage. It's fine. So her father arranged a backup marriage to uh, Grand Prince Yaroslav of Kiev, whom Sweden had a very good trade relationship with. I mean, they were neighbors. So, uh, because of that, uh, Anna's parents were married in 1019 in Kiev. Now, I bet you're wondering, probably not, but I bet you're wondering about Indigrid's other name of St. Anna of Sweden. Well, there's a good reason for why she's also referred to that way. It's because later in life, she was canonized as a saint in the Orthodox Church because of her huge dedication to the building of churches in the Kievan Rus. Uh, she gave shelter and she also gave shelter to the sons of King Edmund Ironside of England when he died, and England was taken over briefly by uh, Canute the Great of Denmark. Yes, that's right, England had a, a Danish king for a little bit. One day we'll talk about that. But anyway, another story for another day. Basically, Anna's mom, cool bitch, who also got to be a saint, and when your mom is a saint, you've got to be cool by association, right? Yeah, I think that's how it works. I don't know. My mom's not a saint. Anyway... <laughs> Let's talk about Anna's papa, Yaroslav. I love that name. Now, Yaroslav was born as one of the many, many sons of Vladimir the Great of uh, Kiev, who is uh, most famous for permanently converting the Rus people to Christianity. So safe to say, Anna's other grandfather, also a very big deal. Now, Yaroslav himself, he was never meant to be the ruler of the Kievan Rus in the first place. Uh, his father actually named 
his younger brother as the next Grand Prince. And when his dad died, Yaroslav decided, you know what, fuck it. And started a war with his little brother over the throne, which Yaroslav won. And also uh, ended in the deaths of, like, several of his other brothers, which, you know, was kind of needed because he had a lot of brothers. And it also kind of made the succession easier. But he had a lot of blood on his hands by the end of the Civil War, which, you know, that's how wars work. However, he does go down in history as Yaroslav the Wise because of his level-headed ruling style, his patronage of the arch arts, which honestly explains a lot about Anna's own education and upbringing, which we should get into because, God, it's fucking impressive for this time period. Now, thanks to Anna's father, the Kievan Rus, at the time she was growing up, was becoming an incredibly influential state, and Yaroslav was concerned with education, especially the education of his children, regardless of gender. Anna learned many subjects that was not usual for a young medieval woman to be learning, like reading, though I, I, that's kind of a generalization. There were plenty of medieval women who could read, but, you know, we, we tend to know about more that couldn't. Anyway, uh, Anna was also taught writing, history, mathematics, and arts, not to mention this cool bitch was fluent in Old Slavonic, Greek, Latin, and she could write in Cyrillic and Glotheic scripts. I don't know what Glotheic, I didn't look it up. I know what Cyrillic language is. It's like, it's like what the Russian language is like written in, and I believe Ukrainian. I'm, I mean, it's, crazy considering women being literate wasn't like an important thing for women to know it's crazy impressive that anna could uh speak several important languages and she could write letters by herself so go anna also go daddy yaroslav for prioritizing his children regardless of gender but he was like really into the education of his daughters also side note uh, one thing I read is apparently uh, Anna was Yaroslav's favorite daughter, so that probably explains why Anna got such, like, a bomb education. And realistically, she made up with the best marriage out of all her sisters. Like, all her sisters were married off as, like, queens, but I'd say she definitely got the best pick out of the bunch. Okay. So, before we get into Anna's story, let's talk a bit about what we think Anna looked like. Now, from everything I've read about Anna, she gets rave reviews by scholars describing her as being incredibly beautiful, but, you know, we have no specifics on what she looked like, so I, I tried to look at art made during and after her lifetime, and a few of these art pieces show Anna as being a blonde, which makes sense. She was half Swedish and everything, uh, so... We're going to imagine her as a cute blonde. Also, we love smart blonde girls in this house. <laughs> so we're going to go with the smart blonde-haired Anna theory. Now that we know a bit about Anna's background, let's get into high gear because Anna is about to make one of the greatest marriages alliances in Ukrainian and Russian history. Now, in the late 1040s, King Henry I of France was not doing so hot both politically and socially. In the year 1044, Henry had lost his wife, Matilda of Frisia, and their only child a couple of weeks apart. And now here he was in his uh, rough 40s in a weak position with no heirs to succeed him. And that's not a place he wanted to be. He knew he needed friends fucking as fast as he could get them. So he started to do a little wife shopping, and that's when he came across Anna of Kiev. 
Now, when marriage negotiations first started for Anna, she had recently been rejected by the Holy Roman Emperor as a marriage prospect. So her dad was like, "It's okay, babe. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get you a better marriage than the Holy Roman Emperor. Fuck him. Fuck him, kid." So. <laughs> Her dad was husband shopping for her, and you know Yaroslav. He was a very he was a very cosmopolitan grand prince. He was really interested in marrying his daughters into as many Western monarchies as possible to create as many ties with the West as he could, which is you know very ironic considering uh, Russia is not really interested in doing that right now. Anyway, uh, Anna's oldest sister Anastasia was the queen of Hungary. Her little sister. Ilsleve was the queen of Norway, and her other sister, Agatha, was married to Edward the Exile, who should have been king of England, but that's, like I said, that's a whole other story. Anyway, when King Henry started to float the idea to Anna's dad that he wanted to marry one of his daughters, Yaroslav was like, fuck yeah, man, I'm all for that. Now, many historians question why the hell this marriage ever happened in the first place after all it's it's kind of a weird alliance a, a bruce princess had never married into the french royal family before because like france had never needed the Rus, and they had never been a particularly overly powerful state so it was kind of weird that like a premier royal family like the french were even looking at a Rus princess to marry but that was exactly the reason Henry had chosen them. At this time, the Catholic Church had been trying to crack down more on close cousin marriages. So when choosing his next wife, Henry decided he needed to, you know, stay out of the normal Western European royal gene pool and, you know, go a little east, which he knew would, one, make the Pope happy and would also, you know, stop incest. <laughs> which it did, because they weren't they weren't related in any sort of way. Also, uh... Not to mention, since the Holy Roman Emperor had rejected Anna, Yaroslav was a bit pissed, and so pissed, so he decided to, to uh, go with the idea of the enemy of my enemy is my friend approach, and decided to accept Henry's very generous offer. And in the year 1051, Anna made her way from Kiev to the city of Reims, where she would have met her new husband for the first time. Also, now that I'm thinking about it, Kiev to Reims was like a long way, like shit. It doesn't mention how long it actually took her to get there, but like shit, that would have been a long ass carriage ride. Whew. Anyway, Anna and Henry were married on the 19th of May, 1051 in Reims Cathedral. The bride was probably about 20 and Henry was 43. So, ew, big age difference. Uh, but unfortunately, in order to get that heir, Henry needed to, uh, you know, marry young. Still, you know, I'm hoping that her, like, 1030 birthday is right for Anna because at least she would have been, like, you know, an adult when she gets married. If we, if we want to believe the uh, 1032 birthday, that would make her 18, which I know is still an adult, but it still feels a little icky. Um, anyway, almost immediately after the wedding, she was crowned as queen, also at Reims Cathedral, because, you know, she was now the motherfucking Queen of France, y'all. Now, before we get into Anna's role as Queen of France, let's talk a bit about her new hubby Henry's life, and a bit of the historical context about what France was doing in this time period, because it's, it's messy. Now, Henry was born as the oldest son of King Robert II of France and his wife Constance of Arles, and let's just say... 
Henry had a fucking rough upbringing and a very shitty relationship with his dad. Now, when he was in his late teens or early 20s, he joined his younger brother in a rebellion against their father with the support of their mother, Constance, which backfired later when Henry officially became king and his younger brother, again, tried to rebel against him (laughs) instead of their dad, which also... gets worse not only did his younger brother rebel against him but his mom supported his younger brother in rebellion against him which which must have sucked like imagine your mom rebelling against you with your younger brother i mean that's some fucking favoritism constance what the fuck anyway he would eventually get his brother to fuck off by uh making him the duke of burgundy so at least he got him off his back but france was still pretty unstable thanks to you know the quite newness of his dynasty the capet dynasty i mean henry was only um I think he was he was monarch number three of the Capet dynasty. And he knew, you know, number three, not a great place to be. I mean, like, you're kind of established, but, like, not so. You could definitely still be overthrown. So he was always trying to make friends, always trying to be careful. Uh, like when he helped uh, his uh, nephew-in-law, the future William the Conqueror, from losing Normandy to other claimants. And when he also made friends with the Count of Flanders, since he was his brother-in-law. Also, a fun connection to a previous episode, uh, Henry's sister uh, Adela was the mother of Matilda Flanders. So our girl Anna was Matilda Flanders' aunt by marriage, which I think is very cool. Anyway, uh, the point is that Henry was a really level-headed guy who, who clearly knew how to run a country. Like, he was good at his job. But I, I don't think he was an incredibly exceptional king, but I think he kept the house from burning down. So, you know, I'm going to give him the credit he is due because he really did do quite a good job but i wouldn't say he's necessarily the most exceptional french king that france ever had speaking of credit i'm very happy to say that henry and anna had a pretty happy marriage based on a lot of respect and he gave her a lot of independence like i gotta say go henry um it's interesting to note that uh at the end of uh, many of his like royal decrees he would write things like with the consent of my wife anna or in the presence of queen anna which is something he didn't do with his first wife so i have to assume he respected and loved anna enough to consult her about any laws he was putting into order or just like general decrees so go king henry we love a supportive and loving husband especially in medieval times Now, speaking of power, let's talk a bit about Anna's time as Queen of France because it is a doozy. Now, Anna had an interesting time getting used to French culture because of how different it was from her native Rus culture. Now, Anna got to know that uh, French people didn't wash themselves or take a bath. Like, I mean, they, they definitely bathed, but it wasn't like something they did often. They mostly just washed their hands and face, and they thought that washing your whole body was considered a sin. So, you know, Paris wasn't the vibe for Anna. It was a small, dirty city. There was no canals or water installation. Uh, Citizens poured sewage right onto the streets. And where Anna was from in the Rus, it was very normal to go to bathhouses and wash yourself. And I I don't know if Kiev had any canal systems. But, you know, my assumption is that they did. And Anna was like, yeah, this is kind of gross. So she made it popular to go to bathhouses. And also, thanks to her being as smart as a whip, she learned to speak French within a few months of getting there. Also, 
good news. Immediately after getting married to Henry, Anna fills her duty and became pregnant. And on the 23rd of May, 1052, uh, like a week after their first wedding anniversary, she had a very, very healthy, beautiful baby boy. Yay. I mean, yeah. We, we, we should be thankful of children regardless of gender, but baby boy was good for her. And she decided to name him the very un-French name, Philip, which is a Greek name that she introduced to the French royal family, which is a very, very cool. Now, after her son Philip, she had Robert, uh, who died young, and finally she had her third boy named Hugh, and uh, finally she had a daughter named Emma. So she had four kids in about six years, which is, you know, pretty impressive, so go her. Now, not only did she do her duty of giving Henry children very, very quickly, but she was also an active participant in his government and one of his main advisors and would also accompany him, accompany him on tours of the country. Now, even the Pope at the time, Pope Nicholas II, was very impressed with her abilities. He once wrote her a letter which said this, and I'm going to use very flowery language. I love this letter. Honorable lady. The fame of your virtues has reached our ears, and with great joy we hear that you are performing your royal duties at this very Christian state, with commendable zeal and brilliant mind. Ha <laughs> ha! He didn't laugh in the letter. I just thought it was funny. But that was the letter. Anyway. Anna knew who she was, and she played her role as queen to perfection. I mean, she was absolutely the ideal medieval queen. She was both pious, fertile, powerful. The three, well, the two P's and one F. <laughs> but uh, very soon, she was about to take on a role that she might not have expected, but was born for and maybe or may not cause a scandal or two. Maybe. Okay, so in the year 1059, Anna would have witnessed the crowning of her son Philip as junior king of France when he was about seven years old. Now, I bet you're wondering. I'm sure you are. <laughs> Aiden. What's a junior king? Well, I'll tell you. Back in this time period, especially in France, it was very common for the current king to crown his oldest son junior king so that when the king died, there would be no confusion as to who was going to be the next king. And to be honest, it might have been a good idea because literally almost exactly the next year on August 4th, 1060, Henry died of a heart attack after a siege where he was trying to expand westward. So, at this point, Anna's eight-year-old son, Philip, became king, and as part of Henry's will, Anna and her brother-in-law, Count Baldwin, who was Matilda Flanders' dad, became co-regents for the young king, which caused a bit of friction. Anna pretty much served the same function she had during her husband's reign. She accompanied little Philip on tours of the country, advised him, and uh, co-signed documents with him. Actually, I believe she is considered the uh, first official female regent in French history, which I think how shows how much trust Henry had in her, that he officially named her regent, even if she did have to share some power with her brother-in-law. Um, about a year or so into little baby Philip's reign, uh, Anna moved out of the palace and settled herself in the town of Salinas, where she founded a convent, and at this point probably expected that she, you know, would retire here, even though she was in, like, her late 30s in the 1060s. But that was until she met a boy. And by boy, I mean man. And by man, I mean Ralph IV of Valois. <laughs> 
Now, Anna had known Ralph while she had been married to Henry, since he was one of their biggest allies and probably one of the most powerful na- neighbors, a huge and a huge landowner owner. So they weren't strangers. And you know, after all, Anna was like still in her thirties, was still young, and you know there was no law forbidding her remarrying at all. So her and Ralph was like, you know, I like you, you like me, let's get married. And so they did. So her and Ralph probably got married in about uh, 1063. Uh, she was 33. He was 38. So not a bad age difference. I mean, she, he's still a little older than her, but definitely a closer age gap than her last husband. But there was a problem almost immediately after they got married. Now, Ralph was already married. <laughs> and his wife was fucking pissed at him for abandoning her. Now, Ralph's current wife was his second wife. Her name was Eleanor, and Ralph had married her for her land because she was a very rich landowner. But Anna was a significantly better couch catch since she was, you know, the mother of the king, which is probably why they got married. But Eleanor didn't give two shits. She was like, um, fuck you. I'm still married to him. You can't fucking divorce me. I'm gonna take all my money back with me. So she was like, I'm gonna go complain to the fucking Pope. So she complained to the Pope, and Ralph clapped back at her by accusing her of adultery and tried to get an annulment, but that didn't exactly work because he had no proof that she committed adultery. Now, the Pope demanded that Ralph return to his wife, and when he refused, he was excommunicated by the Pope, which, you know, in general, I think the average person doesn't think about excommunication as being necessarily a huge thing, but back in these incredibly religious medieval times, being excommunicated the Pope by the Pope was basically a fucking slap in the face, and for Anna to be married to someone who was excommunicated was a huge deal. Anna was basically banished for cor- from court, and some modern historians accuse her of purposely abandoning her children to make a marriage power play, which I don't think is fair to her. I mean, personally, I think she married Ralph for two reasons. One, he was a powerful dude who, as the king's stepfather, could provide little Philip with backup if he ever needed help. And the second reason being is that I think she actually did like him. And she must have, because risking excommunication in this time period was a huge fucking deal. And the fact that they wouldn't separate despite the fact that the Pope excommunicated Ralph, I think says a lot about her affection for him. And I think in some aspects, she married Ralph because she actually got to choose him this time instead of being, you know, married off like she was to Henry. I mean, she loved Henry, but like she got to choose Ralph. And I think that was probably a big factor in why they stayed together. Now, luckily, as Anna's son grew up, they did reconcile, and Anna and Ralph started attending court regularly in the year 1066, and accompanied the now teenage King Philip on his tours. Uh, Both of them helped advise him, and Ralph even started calling himself the king's stepfather, which Philip didn't seem to have a problem with at all. So, all in all, everyone, you know, was cool. Everyone had a good relationship. We love it. Now, Anna lost her husband, Ralph, in the year 1074, and after this, we don't really know a lot about her later life. The last mention of her properly is in 1075, after she signed a charter, so it's likely she got sick and died sometime in that same year. Um, Anna was buried at the Villiers Abbey in uh, Esson, but her tomb was unfortunately mostly destroyed during the French Revolution. Boo. Now, uh, before we talk about... Legacy. Uh, let's talk about 
what happened to Anna's two sons, Philip and Hugh, starting with Hugh. Now, for the most part, Philip... Oh, sorry. We're going to talk about Philip first. My bad. Now, for the most part, Philip was a stable ruler who spent most of his time on the throne putting down rebellions. But my favorite part of Anna's son's reign was Philip's marriages. Now, Philip was first married to a woman named Bertha of Holland, who was his cousin's stepdaughter. But they didn't have a happy marriage, mostly because it took them nine fucking years to conceive children. Now, in the 1090s, Philip got sick of his wife and fell in love with a woman named Bertrade of Montfort, who was already married to the Count of Anjou. Still, like his mother before him, he didn't give a fuck, and he married her anyway, which got him excommunicated. Not just once, not just twice, but three times, which I find hilarious. Now, as for Anna's son, uh, Hugh, he was an incredibly important advisor and soldier to his brother Philip during his reign, uh, and he participated in the First Crusade on behalf, his, on behalf of Philip, because, you know, Philip was excommunicated and he couldn't go, you know, crusading when he was excommunicated. So, you know, Hugh took that over. Um, Hugh married a woman named Adelaide of Vermendois, who was actually the granddaughter of our boy Ralph. So Anna and Ralph shared descendants, and Hugh inherited one of Ralph's lands uh, through his wife. Uh, because, well, Ralph had a son, and then Ralph's son went a little... So uh, the lands were given to Adelaide, and then Adelaide married Hugh, and then Hugh got to become, um, I think it was Count of Ver Vermendois? Yeah. Anyway, the point is he he got the land in that. And as for um, as for Anna's daughter Emma, I couldn't really find anything on her. I'm assuming she probably grew up, got married, probably didn't really do anything significant, which is too bad because I'm sure she was probably a lot like her mother. Sad we don't really know anything about Emma. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. So getting into legacy. God, fuck, where do I even start? I mean, Anna was so incredibly intelligent and such a capable woman who handled being Queen of France in the medieval era like a fucking champ, raised a pretty successful child King of France, which is not easy to do. Baby kings don't always turn out great. But Anna did a very, very good job. She also introduced her culture into French society, especially with those bathhouses. She was a patron of the arts, and like her saint mother before her, she tirelessly dedicated herself to building churches. Okay, now, before I sign off, I just want to end this episode by highlighting some resources you guys can use to help the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Now, Anna herself is a huge part of Ukrainian history. In fact, her signatures in her native language are the oldest example of written Ukrainian, and her country is under attack. Now, to help the people of Ukraine, you can donate to the World Central Kitchen. They are serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families who are fleeing home. You can also uh, donate to UNICEF, Save the Children, and many other great and trusted places are available for you guys to donate to help in Ukraine's time of need. I know Anna would probably be pissed that her country is being attacked. So, donate, donate, donate. It's very important that you do. Now, thank you guys so much for joining me in this episode. I will see you guys in two weeks with the next episode. Bye. 
Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you have any suggestions for topics, you can just DM me on Twitter at LongMaceyRain2. The N at the end of rain is replaced with a 2 instead. I'm also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and like a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on all those platforms. It really actually does help the show so much and it will help me grow my audience. So I would absolutely appreciate it if you guys could do that. All right. uh, Bye.